a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there. Welcome to the show. If you've come to gather and revel in wrong think, you've come to the right place. Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com joins me today. Hi, Eric. Good morning, Brian. I think I need to identify as a black lesbian in order to kickstart my career. That does seem to be the uh, pathway to power these days. I, I assume you're talking about Diane Feinstein's replacement? Yes, apparently. And from what I gather, I haven't really looked into it. She doesn't even live in, in California. Uh, I understand that she lives in Maryland. And uh, her, her main qualifications for being a United States senator, senator other than being black and gay are that she's a, a radical pro-abortion advocate, too. Interesting. You know, let's let's talk for a moment about Senator Feinstein, because you and I have lived through um, what I would guess was the heyday of Feinstein's career. Um, she was probably one of the most avid gun controllers in the yeah. nation's capital. And, you know, well, I know there, the Newsweek, for instance, well, look at this MAGA America celebrating her death. I think they mistake relief that a very avowed enemy of freedom has, you know, graduated life, certainly we're going to feel relief. Now, you know, some people might be dancing on her grave. I am glad that she's gone just from the sense that one more enemy of freedom is no longer in in the picture. Yeah, but the downside is that she's been replaced by a new and more vigorous one. If there was any benefit to Feinstein is that she was a walking dead, literally, and corpses can only do so much. Uh, now you've got somebody who's actually got a pulse occupying her seat of power. <laughs> And I think that that's ultimately far more dangerous than having essentially a corpse being wheeled in and out of the Senate chamber. Let's talk for a moment, Eric, about uh, about what this means. I mean, Feinstein is far from the only one who's kind of wheezing along on life support there in yeah. uh, in the nation's uh, capital. Um, it seems like, you know, once once these people get into power, they are I don't know if it's if it's safe to say they're owned or they're operated They're I mean, Biden's a good example of this. The man is little more than a Muppet who is just a, a figure. Well, you know, there's something tragic about it, or there would be if these people weren't so evil. And, and what I mean by that is they cling desperately to power, literally to the point where they're shuffled off uh, to the next world, uh, which tells me that they've got nothing in their lives at all, except for uh, the adulation of power and having people bow obsequiously before them and being regarded as something important. There's something very pathetic about that to be somebody in your 80s who doesn't want to spend the very short time you've got left with your family, you know, and, and perhaps doing something of value as opposed to pretending that you're going to live forever and wielding power as if you would. Yeah, and I think one of one of the telltale signs of just how corrupted and how uh, manipulative this system has become is as Diane Feinstein presumably was in a coma and on her way out of this life, um, she cast her final vote for, you know, a particular measure. Mm -hmm. And you, you I don't know why more people don't stop and question this and say, is, is that really the intent of representative government? Well, sure. You know, if, if you are a person who wasn't obsessed with the, uh, with the use of power, the wielding of power, you would say, wait a minute. Uh, it's not so much that this person is old. It's that they're no longer competent. And, you know, that's, uh, Biden is a good case in point of that. Uh, you know, clearly the man shouldn't be there any longer. He's no longer able 
to competently perform the role uh, that, that he has assigned himself to perform. And yet it's okay, you know, from the point of view of the left, to have these doddering geriatrics out there uh, because it helps to further their agenda. Remember, these are the same people who went apoplectic about Ronald Reagan, who, if I memory serves, I think he was 68 when he was elected. He, I don't think he was even 70 years old. And, and they went berserk about how this old geezer um, was going to become the president. God help us, because we're going to have a drooling, uh, roomy-eyed old coot in charge of the country. And, and now look at what we've got. We've got somebody who's considerably older right now than Reagan was at the end of his term. Well, like Second I say, the, 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 the great favor that's being done here, if, if we can see it this way, is the curtains being pulled back on the fact that politicians are controlled by special interests or, or handlers. And, and maybe it's time to start demanding a little more transparency and, and a better understanding. Who is actually calling the shots here? Well, I think the more profound revelation is that we have a uniparty. Uh, I really like that term because it neatly encapsulates the fact of the matter, which is that we don't have any real alternatives in this country. And it was once again on display uh, when uh, both sides voted to continue pumping money into Kiev. You know, there's no disagreement on things like that. There are only petty disagreements about things that don't matter ultimately. And that's why I'm kind of glad to see RFK coming online as an independent. I think it would be just peachy if it turned out that he somehow managed to get elected as an independent uh, and uh, the, the Democrats and, and the Republicans, the Uniparty, were soundly rejected by a majority of the electorate. I'm actually going to be sharing a commentary from James Howard Kunstler a little bit later on in the hour uh, about Bobby Kennedy Jr. and and the fact that, uh, you know, the, the Democratic Party obviously doesn't want him. And we may actually see... Uh, a three-way kind of race where none of the candidates uh, get the plurality needed to get all the electoral votes. It, it may go to the House of Representatives. Yeah, I read Consular's article, and it hopefully won't get to that point. Hopefully, you know, in an ideal scenario, uh, RFK would actually win the majority and uh, thereby, at a stroke, discredit the Uniparty, both the Democrats and the Republicans. Uh, I think there are a lot of people out there, my sense of it, this is maybe just me projecting, but they find RFK appealing on a, uh, for a number of reasons. You know, one is he actually speaks in complete sentences like an adult, uh, as opposed to a 12-year-old schoolyard bully or uh, somebody who's senile. And he seems to be reflective and thoughtful and a person who actually considers and thinks about issues before spouting off on them. And people are so desperate. I mean, I am certainly to hear somebody like that. Uh, I think the man has great appeal. And, you know, I, I just hope he can manage to pull it off. Yeah. And it's like you, there are certain disagreements that I have with him, for instance, on gun control and, and climate change, mm -hmm. but they, they are minor compared to the places where I do agree with him. And that is that there is a uniparty and whatever the uniparty is going after is not in our interest. So uh, I'll set aside some of the minor disagreements to at least hear him out on, on the things where I think he is making sense and where, you know, he's being targeted for, you know, I wouldn't say destruction, but at least marginalization, that tells me he may be on the right path. Well, yeah, I'll amend, amend that. And I also think he's persuadable. You know, he has come around a lot on the climate change thing, for example. Uh, you know, he used to be pretty much, uh, very much in the camp of the people who insisted that the climate was changing in a catastrophic manner. And now he has wheeled around and said that perhaps he was wrong in so many words, that it's being exaggerated and it's being used to manipulate people. And I find that very appealing. You know, he's somebody who can actually acknowledge that perhaps he was wrong uh, on something and reconsider his position. And, and Trump is incapable of that, clearly. 
And obviously Biden is incapable of that uh, cognitively, but also ideologically, because these people on the left will never, ever concede that they were wrong about anything. And that makes them very much of a piece with the people on the right. And it's incredibly frustrating. Well, and and again, I think one of the big strong points for, for Kennedy without sounding like I'm just out and out endorsing him, is he is one of the very few people who's talking about accountability for the inexcusable lockdowns and mandates and upending mm-hmm. of society under the guise of protecting us from COVID. Yes, and much more profoundly, I think, he is also publicly talking about this incestuous, complicit relationship of big corporations and big government and how these big corporations essentially own the government and use it as a, as their sock puppet, puppet and their enforcer as their, their mechanism for making people, in the case of these, these so-called vaccines, uh, submit and, and take their product and pay for it in the same stroke. And, you know, it's not just the pharmaceutical industry. It's generally, it's the FDA, it's everything at every level of the federal government. And he's the only person at the national level who's talking about this. And, and I love to hear him talk about it. All right. I appreciate your take on this. I Personally, I try to spend as little time as possible you know, concerning myself with what's going to happen next year. But uh, I, I'm also watching with great interest and not a small amount of horror as, uh, as this country gets crazier and more volatile by the day. And this is a big part of where that uh, lack of stability comes from. Yeah, you know, I filed my most recent diaper report on this very topic. Uh, I ripped off of a CNN article that was talking about how there's a plague of mental illness afoot in the country. And, of course, they were talking about something else. They were talking about... Uh, PTSD with regard to people who are in the army and so on. And that's true, but they, they actually missed the point. The whole country has been PTSD by all of this insanity, by this endless, constant barrage of chaos uh, and, and anxiety about what's going to happen next, you know, what, what, what's going to drop on our heads tomorrow. And that's the issue that needs to be addressed if we're ever going to recover our sanity. Here, here. I noticed that uh, one of the big news organizations in Utah was was going on about how one in twenty people tried ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine during, uh, you know, COVID to treat COVID, and they were lamenting. Well, these people were using um, non. How did they? Force-based. Yeah. Well, they they they, they they had a way of saying it like they were they were using non evidence based medicine, and I'm like, no, it's not evidence. It's non narrative based mm-hmm. medicine. At least you know, taking the jab. Well, and which turned out to actually be safer and more effective than the, than the jabs, right? Right. All right, hold that thought, I mean, it's Eric. it's almost axiomatic. It is almost axiomatic that whatever they tell us, meaning you know the, the so-called experts, the government, you can safely assume it's the opposite of that. It's true. Hold that thought. We'll be back in just a few moments. Eric Peters from Eric Peters Autos is my guest. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. We're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Eric, you talked about something, or you, you briefly mentioned something about, uh, you know, we're, we're, being, we're being shepherded into a place where, where we really don't have a lot of say over our lives. And you wrote about this recently with uh, unlocking what you own. And, and I'd like to talk about this. How many things in our lives are on the verge of becoming subscription-based? Well, uh, you know, we've already had to deal with that with regard to software, with regard to streaming services online, so many other things. That model is being applied to cars. Uh, the article got into this topic using the Cadillac Lyric, which is an electric car. 
and uh, the announcement by Cadillac that they would unlock more power if you paid $1,200 more to get it. And this is something that Tesla was the first to pioneer in that they would let you have certain features if you paid for them, not once at the time that you purchased the car, but ongoing. And uh, it wouldn't transfer to the second owner. So if you sold your car, the next person who bought it would then have to re-up the subscription on their own. And this is the model that they're after. It's, it's not like the old days when you bought and paid for the car. It was yours entirely, and you had complete control over it. Uh, it is now something that you pay for, but fundamentally you don't own it because you have to continue paying for it, uh, paying for the, the aspects of it that you want to be able to use. A good example of it is BMW charging you for, uh, for functional heated seats. They equip the car with heated seats. It has the hardware. But if you don't sign up for the subscription, the heated seats don't work. And eventually, it's probably going to encompass everything. It'll get to the point where essentially you just pay for uh, the, the opportunity to uh, use the vehicle for a month, let's say, or six months or however long it is, but you never truly own it. I just can't shake the feeling that all of this is leading us in the direction of everything in your life that makes it convenient and comfortable is going to be contingent on whether you're obedient to those in power or not. Well, certainly that's a facet of it. The other facet of it is that you won't own anything. They don't want a middle class. They don't even want a working class. They don't want people who have things, possessions, anything more than the clothes on their back. They don't want people who own cars. They don't want people who own homes. They want people who are paying for everything, including possibly the shirt on their back. They're actually talking about that, too. Uh, you know, and why would they want that? Well, because it makes you perpetually dependent. You never own anything, so you're constantly having to generate income to pay for the things that you need to use, including life's necessities. That is how they're going to recreate feudalism in the modern world. So I have to ask then, uh, in your opinion, what what do we do in response? I'm pretty determined to stay free. I know you are as well. What uh, what's what's our pan, our plan from here? Well, the simple answer is one word: no. Uh, don't buy into it. You know, it's very easy, very subtle uh, to be uh, lulled in by the neatness of gadgets. You know, look at cell phones, for example. Look at how almost all of us have one, me included, mea culpa, uh, because it's convenient. You know, you can you can make a, a phone call while you're driving or, you know, if, if you're out on a hike somewhere, you can snap a picture of a bird, whatever it is. It's convenient. It's cool. And that's how they get you into this stuff. And uh, at some point, it's better to resist the temptation of what's convenient and neat and recognize that this is dangerous and don't participate in it. So, you know, with regard to vehicles, don't buy one. Don't buy one of these new vehicles. Uh, and even talk to the salesman and the dealer and say, look, the reason I'm not buying is because I don't want all this stuff in the car. I want a car. I want to own it. I want to control it. I do not want to be controlled by my car. Yeah, I think at some level, too, we have to uh, we have to deal with that uh, fear of missing out, FOMO, you know, um, well, sure. everybody else has the newest, latest, greatest, you know, version of the iPhone or whatever. At some point, anybody who's serious about uh, maintaining their personal autonomy and self-determination is going to have to do, as you say, tell, tell them, no, I don't need that. Yeah, can you, I foresee, here's another um, way to look at this. Probably at some point, they, they already have the technology to make uh, a gun that uh, is, is only usable if it recognizes some biometric identifier, like a fingerprint, for example. Like you have to press your fingerprint against the, the thing for it to operate. Don't buy a gun like that. Keep the guns that you have. If enough of us say no, that's the key, enough. If enough of us say no to things like that, to these, these EVs, to these big brother cars, all of that, it won't work. 
you know, that's all that it will take for us to turn this around. But it's a matter of each of us as an individual deciding, I'm not going to do it. And then the next guy deciding he's not going to do it. And then the next guy after that saying the same. Yep. This is the kind of courage is contagious sort of thing we ought to be spreading. Let's talk about yep. climate change, because I know that this is this is kind of the new leverage being used against us. Okay, COVID ran its course. We're not mm-hmm. we're not uh, buying into that fear anymore. So climate change is going to be used to separate us from our freedoms. Uh, talk to me about uh, the general welfare clause mm-hmm. and, and climate change. Well, I think the thing a lot of constitutional scholars uh, on our side of the aisle have noted that the reason we no longer live in a constitutional uh, country, one that is governed by a constitution that, that strictly limits the powers of the federal government, is because the lawyers who wrote it managed to insert weasel words into the document. And uh, those include words like general welfare. You know, lawyers are very precise with words. So it's not for nothing that they put those two words into the document. And they did so because that's a matter of opinion. You know, your opinion of what the general welfare is will differ from mine and ours will differ from somebody else's. In other words, it's something that can be parsed and argued. So you can say, well, it's in the general interest that we have uh, government schools or that we have uh, that we have national health care. You know, any, practically anything you want can be, can be uh, argued is in the general welfare. And to correlate this with the whole climate change thing, again, what does that mean, climate change? It doesn't mean anything specific, does it? It can mean practically anything you want it to. And that makes it very effective as a tool of argument if you accept that term as the basis of an argument without questioning it. Instead of saying, wait a minute, what do you mean exactly by climate changing? You know, use that as the basis for any discussion, and you have a good chance of winning the argument. Yep. I actually, uh, I've been enjoying the climate change here in uh, my home state of Idaho here lately because I love to see the leaves change, and I love the cooler temperatures. And you know what? The climate yep. changes four times a year. It, it changes. Yep. Well, you know, I've been reading a, a biography uh, of Robert E. Lee, and incidentally, one of the things in it that interested me was uh, talking about, I think it was in 1858, uh, the Potomac River in Washington froze over solid, you know, and that was long before uh, automobiles and before mass industrialization was uh, putting, uh, putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And if you go back to the historical record, you'll find those sorts of examples of extreme weather and climate changing happening because that's what happens on the Earth. The Earth is not a static system. And this idea that somehow a literally less than less than half of a percent increase uh, in the amount of carbon dioxide that's put into the atmosphere is somehow creating a crisis is as insane as, as saying that a virus that doesn't kill 99.8 percent of the healthy population constitutes a pandemic. By the way, I don't know if if you ever spend much time over at uh, the Brownstone Institute's website. Mm-hmm. Jeffrey Tucker had a marvelous piece on the new pandemic, which is denialism. And that's all these yeah. people in authority. Oh, we never locked anything down. We never forced anybody yeah. to do anything. Why well, that stuff never happened. The the gaslighting is is at a level I don't even know if science has instruments that can measure. How, how deep it is. Well, and the obverse of that that's even worse is that they want to criminalize people who point that out, uh, who disagree with anything that these people say, even if they're absolutely correct on the facts. You know, you, you point out something that they said that was a lie or wrong, uh, and if it deviates from the narrative, they want to criminalize that as wrong thinkfulness. We're literally on the cusp of becoming actual real-life participants in Orwell's 1984. Yep. All I know is, uh, as long as I have breath in my lungs, 
I'm going to continue to be a pain in their rear end. I'm going to I'm going to speak up and call for people to be held accountable and and hopefully, you know, those who abused power will be separated from power. It can't happen soon enough. All we have to do is as Fulton Edson said is to is to is to not live by lies, you know, to stand for the truth and when confronted by a lie, don't let it pass. Stand up for the truth. And you know, the truth is is always right in a moral sense, period. And if you stand up for the truth against lies, which are always evil, ultimately, in the end, the right will prevail. Hear, hear. Eric, this is why I love to visit with you each week. I come away feeling encouraged and invigorated. Thank you so much for your time, and please keep up the good work. You know I will, and thank you for the same. All right, again, it's Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. There's a link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Go spend some time on Eric's website. You'll be glad you did. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show, and thank you again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I don't know that we're ever going to take over the world. I don't really know that that's our plan. If we did, all we would do is... Well, mind our own business and basically leave everybody alone. So, yeah, you know, whatever conspiracy we're a part of, the pro-freedom conspiracy, you know, it's it's scary to people who want to rule us, but uh, not so much to the people around us, which is as it should be. Now, having said that, I do wonder sometimes in the back of my mind, I wonder, you know, is there ever going to come a day that I'm going to have the thought police standing outside my door? Now, the funny thing about that is, I look, I'm not a big deal. I don't have that big of an audience. I obviously don't have that much impact. And so at this point, nobody in power considers my little show or any of my efforts, my writing and so forth, to be a a threat. If they did, I'm sure that there would be pressure being brought to bear. We've got to shut this guy up. So it's just crazy to find that, uh, you know, we're, we're moving toward a time where I think even even just average people like me are, are having to be concerned. And that means you ha- ought to be concerned, too, because you and I, we're, we're not so different. Got a great article here from J.B. Shirk. This is from AmericanThinker.com. And it just it really raised some interesting questions for me because he's talking about the new rules for radicals. And you have to understand when he's talking about the radicals. He's talking about people like you and me. People who still believe in traditional values like, yes, there's right and there's wrong. People who still believe in freedom, who still believe in individual rights, who believe in freedom of conscience, who believe in family, protecting our kids. We are the radicals, at least in the eyes of many of those in power. So he's got a pretty interesting take here. He says it's a reflection of these volatile times that the Supreme Court's First Amendment ruling in Brandenburg versus Ohio, that was back in 1969, echoes in the back of my mind whenever I sit down to write. He says, in that case, the court defended inflammatory speech from government punishment unless it's directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. Now, he says how government defines lawless action, though, that's quickly changing. For instance, just being a concerned parent opposed to a school board's sexualized curriculum 
can make an otherwise law-abiding American a potential domestic terrorist in the eyes of the FBI. J.B. Shirk says, Today the federal Leviathan is neck deep in the ugly business of propaganda and censorship. It persecutes J6 election protesters rather for their political beliefs. It seeks to imprison President Trump for the crime of having delivered a political speech. Congress engages in Soviet show trials devoid of due process or exculpatory defense, but rife with unsupported accusation and criminal innuendo. The Department of Injustice and the Fascist Bureau of Intimidation maliciously prosecute Americans for merely opposing government policies. As part of the expanding system of two-tiered justice, leftist violence is regularly defended as free speech, while speech articulated against leftism is illogically denounced as violence. Unapproved dissent is labeled disinformation. Unapproved religious faiths or family values are condemned for promoting hate. Unapproved ideas, debates, and political movements are expunged from the Internet. That's quite a laundry list he's just worked through there, but... I detect no falsehoods in anything he has listed here. The point is, the war on free speech is raging, and J.B. Shirk says, I would not be surprised to find the thought police one day knocking on my door simply because I've offended the delicate sensibilities of the all-powerful state. So he says, to the extent that anything I write might be construed as encouraging lawless action for the sake of my future defense, at least don't act immediately or imminently after reading this. Let's not make it too easy for the black robes to hang me, okay? Now, that said, he says, I really don't see how the federal government is currently constituted can continue much much longer. Its authority is now sustained through no-knock raids, mass surveillance, financial coercion, ideological targeting, the designation of law-abiding citizens as domestic terrorists, and thinly-veiled threats to use military hardware hardware rather to quell potential public unrest. The federal government is a lawless thug that is dispensed with the pretense of abiding by the U.S. Constitution's constraints. Spying on Americans without warrants or probable cause? Check. Infringing on Americans' First Amendment rights to say what they want, pray as they wish, assemble as they see fit, and petition their government for redress of grievances whenever they deem doing so necessary? Check. Infringing on Americans' Second Amendment rights to defend themselves from government tyranny? Check. He says the Bill of Rights is not an a la carte menu from which the government may pick and choose whether a right will be respected or ignored. Our constitutional rights are a small subset of a greater body of natural rights that belong to each individual and can never be forsaken or diluted by any entity falsely claiming the authority to do so. I'm sorry, that needs to be repeated. That needs to be seared in your heart. Our I'm not going to use the word constitutional because it doesn't come from the Constitution, but our rights are a small subset of a greater body of natural rights. When he says constitutional, he just means the ones enumerated as being protected by the Constitution. They are part of a greater body of natural rights that belong to each individual and can never be forsaken or diluted by any entity falsely claiming the authority to do so. You have to believe that and live as if that's true if you want to be free. He says, with provocative deliberateness that will surely sabotage long-term civic peace, 
the federal government has entirely repudiated, repudiated rather, both America's founding principles and its founding document. It is in breach of the only contract that binds the American people to their constitutional system. Consequently, the federal government now governs through fear and force alone. As Ayn Rand incisively wrote, there are two potential violators of man's rights, the criminals and the government. The great achievement of the United States was to draw a distinction between these two by forbidding to the second the legalized version of the activities of the first. That truth no longer holds precisely because the governing class and the criminal class are now one and the same. Narco-terrorists and sex slave traffickers wouldn't have a profitable business model, after all, if the federal government were not complicit in protecting their evil trade across our borders. He says at this stage, in our society's collapse, no rational person should have any illusion that we can simply vote our way out of so much entrenched bureaucratic tyranny. Americans who tried to do so in 2016 with the election of President Trump and the whole apparatus or tried to do so rather in 2016, and the whole apparatus of the deep state machine has been undermining that vote ever since. The intelligence community helped frame Trump as a Russian spy. The Department of Injustice dedicated itself to his harassment and constant investigation. The rabidly leftist government workforce countermounted his lawful executive orders while unlawfully leaking slanted information intended to embarrass him personally and weaken his presidency. State election laws were thrown out the window in 2020 so the Uniparty could flood battleground states with fraudulent mail-in ballots that made the habitually unpopular Joe Biden the most popularly elected, in quotation marks, president in American history. So Shirk says what remains of the criminal justice system's reputation for fairness and impartiality has been jettisoned so that political partisans posing as prosecutors can railroad Trump with ludicrous criminal charges that would be laughable if they were not so serious, all to ensure that the American voters never get their say and to imprison President Trump for the rest of his life. He's been indicted for possessing documents most likely implicating the FBI and others in the Russia hoax, and he was these are documents he was constitutionally empowered to possess. While Joe Biden has gotten a pass for illegally retaining classified documents for decades. Trump's been indicted for trying to investigate election fraud in Georgia. He's been indicted for delivering a political speech and encouraging Americans to peacefully assemble to petition their government for free and fair elections. And he's been indicted because the state of New York insists that payments intended to settle private legal matters should be reimbursed as campaign expenses, if those expenses can be used to embarrass Donald Trump. With no consideration for the Constitution's prohibition against bills of attainer and with and ex post facto laws, New York rewrote its statute of limitations governing a subset of defamation actions specifically so that a claimant could sue Trump. And then, just to put the cherry on top of New York's totalitarian ice cream sundae, another partisan judge ruled, without trial or jury, that the Trumps must cease all business operations in the state. So to be sure, this Soviet-style persecution says one thing to all Americans. Do what we say or suffer the consequences. Well, what's good for the goose is good for the gander, says J.B. Shirk. The new rules for radicals require uniparty-aligned politicians, bureaucrats, and businesses receive reciprocal treatment. And if state officials refuse to balance the scales, well, then Americans will have to ante, um, up the ante rather on their own. 
You'll find a link to this in today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Back in a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. Two articles to touch on in our final segment today. I want to start with uh, James Howard Kunstler. Again, I, I don't spend a lot of time on politics. But when I do want to know what's going on, when I want the down and dirty, all right, let me have it. Both barrels, tell me what's, what's happening. Uh, James Howard Kunstler is really one of my favorite sources. Not only do I think this guy is dialed in, and I think he's seeing things pretty clearly, but uh, also he's got a great way with words. He starts with a quote from Jacob Dreisen, Intents have been overtaken by events. Kunstler says, you have to wonder what took Bobby Kennedy Jr. so long to recognize that the Democratic Party was a home that he had long ago been turned out of, like a dog that had peed on the carpet too many times. At the end of last week, Mr. Kennedy intimated that he might run for president on an independent line. Now, if he manages to get that line on the state ballots, you can easily imagine New York and California trying to thwart him. Think about it. It will change all the current calculations about the 2024 election. As of right now, he says the party of chaos is living up to its name. They continue to present an obviously false and ridiculous consensus among themselves that Joe Biden is running for re-election. In fact, Kunstler says the big guy is about to get run through a ringer of the most abject public disgrace as his already well-known crimes of bribery and treason get conscientiously laid out for all to see with cold and implacable decorum. Even the mind-screwed spawn of the Ivy League tolling away on their CIA-owned newspapers and cable news networks might find themselves forced to spin their narrative in a new direction. Joe Biden is now a monumental embarrassment and liability to our country, let alone to the degenerate party that owns him. Sub Rosa efforts must be in motion to persuade him to resign before the impeachment inquiry spotlights all those telltale bank records. But they will fail to overcome his demented pride. He'll ride this thing out to the bitter end when he can use the last tool at his disposal to officially pardon everyone involved in his family's racketeering operation. The longer the party pretends to support him, the closer the party itself skates towards self-destruction. And to also consider, if allowed to play out, the impeachment inquiry will implicate the DOJ and FBI in obstruction of justice, exposing many deep state blob players to danger of prosecution. Kunstler says Governor Gavin Newsom dangles himself above the fray as the do ex machina who can touch down in D.C. and make all the Democrats' problems go away. Such an attractive fellow, great teeth and hair, tall as a sequoia, and such a smooth talker. The woked-up suburban ladies who comprise the party's main voting block grow moist in anticipation of Governor Newsom landing on stage like a demigod out of a Mozart opera. But how do you think he'll make out in an election when the airwaves are filled with opposition ads showing his toothy and hairy visage inset against scenes of homeless junkies and looting flash mobs? Try blaming that on climate change. What else does he stand for? Censorship? Forced vaccinations? Child sex mutilations? Open borders? Newsflash? These are increasingly unpopular, except among an easily identified depraved elite. Indeed, the whole left-right demon-driven psychodrama is proving impossible to live in as it throbs and pulsates towards something like civil war. 
and it has obscured the truly potent idea that the nation might actually be capable of solving its problems by facing up to them and changing how we act. That potent idea might be what voters will see in Bobby Kennedy if he can get their attention. Mr. Kennedy would dismantle the heinous partnerships between private corporations and the U.S. government that loosed the COVID-19 op on the world and asset strips the middle class. He favors closing the border and a re-evaluation of immigration policy. He aims to negotiate an end to the ignoble Ukraine war project. He's determined to dissemble, disassemble rather, the security state apparatus that's destroying the U.S. Constitution and citizens' natural rights with it. Mr. Kennedy says he can bring divided Americans together on these dire matters. It's conceivable that his message might go over with enough rank or weary voters to pull off a tour de force plurality in a three-way race, where nobody wins enough electoral votes to settle the contest, which then moves to the House, like in the old days of Jefferson and Burr. The election is, the rest rather, he says, is election mechanics, some of it very sinister when you consider all the election-rigging booby traps already in place, such as mass mail-in ballot harvesting, no voter ID requirements, and the still mysterious hookups of vote-counting machines to the Internet. But at least Mr. Kennedy running on an independent line will be a hard whap upside the Democratic Party's thick skull, maybe even a death blow to the party. They made a big mistake in trying to unperson him. James Howard Kunstler says he's on a hero's journey at a moment in history when America dearly needs a hero. By the way, don't take this as, therefore, I'm encouraging everybody to, you know, back Bobby Kennedy Jr. But that is an interesting possibility. And, of course, with Dianne Feinstein passing away and with, uh, you know, the possibility of Joe Biden either resigning or being impeached, there's a whole lot of chaos possible. Again, give a small portion of your attention to the political psychodrama, but to put most of that attention on what you can be doing close to home to build whatever comes next. That's going to start with your family, your neighbors, your community. All right, one final article. This is the article of the day. It's from Dr. Walter Block. A fascinating take on why you shouldn't need a doctor's permission to get prescription drugs. This is so interesting, especially when you consider, you know, how hard uh, the FDA, among others, and the CDC fought against people having access to hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin as treatment for COVID. In fact, what was it? KSL, right? The flagship station of Utah, you know, the, the news source published an article yesterday. My friend Tyler shared this with me, lamenting that, well, you know, uh, doctors say about, uh, what did he say? I gotta, I've got to double check the... Um, I've got to double check the actual actual number of uh, of people. I think it was uh, yeah, one in twenty Americans used ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine to treat COVID nineteen. One in twenty, and the way they they lament this is that well, it's a unreviewed concoction, and uh, they they used it in favor uh, rather in, uh, in, rather than using a proven tested vaccine. And it's like, for crying out loud, do you know the history of ivermectin? As opposed to a vaccine that was rushed into the marketplace and foisted on people under duress, virtually untested. I love the, the way they put it. They, they talk about, uh, well, these were people who were using non-evidence-based medicines to treat COVID. What they really mean is non-narrative-based. But I digress. Back to Walter Block's article. 
He says the present system for pharmaceutical drugs requires a doctor's prescription as a precondition for their sale to members of the public. Now, at first glance, that seems like a reasonable plan. After all, most people simply lack the necessary information to determine whether they need or can benefit from, and he gives a very long list of different drugs. But he says if people had that knowledge, which the, most, which the average person most certainly does not, they still would be totally lost as far as the proper dosage is concerned. But that's, that's not the point here. He says we're not talking about advice and counsel from a physician to a patient. That's all well and good. The problem is that the horse is placed before the cart. The client must seek permission of a person who is, for all intents and purposes, an employee of his, not an employer. Just stop and think about that. Your doctor's not your boss, but you have to seek his permission as if he is. Now he says the proper relationship between the two should be the patient seeking advice, but instead we have to bend our knee to beg permission from our physician. Now imagine if this system were extrapolated to other fields of endeavor. Then instead of the motorist telling the mechanic which of his services he requires, matters would be inverted. The former would have to gain the approval of the latter regarding the proper procedures to be followed. Instead of the customer telling the cab driver where to go, the former would have to seek the approval from the latter regarding the destination deemed by him to be the most appropriate. Similarly, the diner would ask permission of the waiter as to what kind of meal to order. You see the point he's making? Yeah, he says there are certain disanalogies here. Pharmaceuticals have life and death implications, certainly those for good health. Some, but not all of those examples are fully apropos, though. But it's a dramatic, accurate way of depicting exactly what's going on in the prescription system. So how should matters work ideally? Well, architects give advice to builders. Mechanics give advice to automobile owners. That's exactly the relationship that should prevail between a doctor and a patient. The former should advise the latter as to proper medication, but the patient should be free to ignore what the physician says, to seek out a second opinion, and to have access to whatever legal drug is out there. All drugs should be legal, he says, but that's a different matter. Lawyers know more about us than the law, but the same thing follows. There are employees, not our employers. Physicists, chemists, mathematicians, economists, musicians, plumbers, and electricians also are more knowledgeable about their specialties than we laymen. But it gives them not a shred of justification to boss us around. Yes, doctors too know more than us specifically about medicine, but that shouldn't make them our bosses. Their brief should not be to permit or to withhold permission. We are their clients, not their children. And Walter Block says we should not be treated as such. This is The Brian Hyde Show.